Good morning. Um, my name is Anthony. I'm part of the church family here. Today's scripture reading is going to be taken from Nehemiah chapter 9, from 5 to 31. Nehemiah 9, from 5 to 31. And it's going to be in the church Bibles from page, pages 492 to 494. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and the highest heavens, and all the starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abraham and brought him out of heir of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Gergeshites. You kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you held their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down from Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image, a calf, and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful, awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in their wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in their wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. 
You give them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as stars in the sky, and you brought, you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land you gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings, the people of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient, rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and, your great, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers, who rescued, who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back into your law, to your law. But they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, The person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of your neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Amen. Um, if you were here last, last week, you'd have heard Chris talk about the fact that when we come to God's word, we need to be hungry, attentive, responsive, and teachable. And I'd like to challenge us all about that today. I'd like to challenge myself. Am I approaching God's word today as somebody who's hungry, attentive, responsive, and teachable? Matthew, who's our head of youth, is going to be explaining that passage to us. So I'd like to pray for Matthew. Come up here, Matthew, I'll pray for you. And pray for us as we listen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word and thank you that you speak through it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill Matthew and enable him to bring to us the message that you have put on his heart today and the message that you want us to hear. And as we listen, Lord, would we be hungry to hear you, attentive to what you say, responsive and obedient as we hear your voice. Lord, may we have teachable hearts 
Please do your work among us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. What is strange about this passage? It's one of my favorite questions to ask uh, when I'm looking at the Bible. As Alison said, I'm Matthew, I work with the youth. Normally right now, I'd be in the basement with the teenage, some of the younger teenagers, and whenever I'm with them or preparing the Bible to study with them, I'm often asking, what is strange about this passage? And what's strange about this passage, Nehemiah 9? You might think the strangest thing about this passage is that we're bothering to look at it. It's about two and a half millennia old and largely about things that happened up to a millennia before it was written. Why do we care? It's about God's people. And we are the church or part of the church and therefore we are now God's people. And the human heart hasn't changed that much in the last two and a half millennia. And so their realizations about what it's like for the heart of God's people is still helpful for us. Perhaps you think the strangest thing about the passage is how long a chunk I asked to be read. Actually, we're looking at uh, the whole of Nehemiah 9 and Nehemiah 10. So I was cutting it down. But we look, that's kind of the heart of what we're looking at, the bit that we had read. Perhaps you think the strangest thing in the passage is some of the names. In verse 4, there is a list of names which includes two people called Bani and one called Bunny, which I find fun. There's also in verse 22, a King Og. How he got any respect, I don't know. And there's lots and lots of long polysyllabic names that Anthony did a great job reading. Perhaps you think the strangest thing in this passage is the people who are declaring this confession clearly believe in miracles. Or maybe you think the strangest thing is that they clearly believe that God's laws are good. I think the strangest thing in this passage is the subtitle it's been given. So in the Bible, uh, the translators, because it's been translated, put subtitles in so we can find what we're looking for easier. And they gave this one, the Israelites confess their sins. And that seems a strange title to me. To confess is to admit your wrongdoings. And when I hear that the Israelites confess their sins, I think of them each individually admitting what they've done wrong. But that's not what we see here. They are admitting as a group what they as a group have done wrong. And that feels odd to me. I don't tend to think of guilt and wrongdoing in that kind of group way, at least not for groups I'm part of. I might sometimes look at another group that's done something wrong and think they all did that, but that's, if I'm part of a group, that's not how I think. And so that feels odd to me. And they're not even admitting things that they've done wrong, the, the people that were there. They're confessing the sins of their ancestors since they started being a people. The kind of best modern-day equivalent I could come up with for that 
was imagine if the Norwegians all gathered together and confessed the things that the Norwegians had done wrong since the Vikings. That's the time frame we're looking at. It's just bizarre to me. Or that I've said they're the people of God and now the church is the people of God. So what if the church worldwide gathered together, okay, forgetting all of the Omicron coronavirus and environmental problems that the whole church gathering together might present, imagine them gathering together and us as a church admitting all the things that the church has done wrong since it started being the church. It would be controversial to say the least. It seems a weird thing to do. But the reason they're doing this, they're gathering together, is because admitting what they've done wrong and working out who they are is important. But there's one more reason I think this subtitle is strange, which is they spend more time in this confession admitting what they've done wrong is what a confession is. They spend more time talking about what God has done than what they've done. Let's, so I've listed some of the things they've done. Let's have the first. So they start off by saying God created everything. He chose a bloke called Abraham and then gave him a new name and identity, Abraham. And they made a deal with him. And he made promises. What did this ancestor of the Israelites have to do for all of this? He had a faithful heart. Was about it. Didn't do anything. I mean, sure, there was a deal, and that kind of implies there was two sides to a deal. But if you actually look in the deal, see, if you want to look at any of this, it's in Genesis. If you want to look at the deal, it's very, very weighted towards God doing stuff and Abraham doing very, very little. And that's what they take from Genesis. That's everything God's done to them to start with. After this, they skip a bit of the story and they end up, their ancestors end up as slaves in Egypt. And so we get into the bit of Exodus and God sees the people suffering. He hears them cry out and he sends signs and wonders. He even divides an ocean, the Red Sea, so they can escape and he leads them through a desert. God has done so much. What do the Israelites have to do to get this? They cry out to God. That's all they do. They do nothing so far in Exodus apart from cry out to God and get heard by God and God acts. As we go further on in Exodus, God continues to do stuff. He speaks to his people. He gives his people good laws. Whether we think they're good laws is kind of beside the point of this, kind of what we're looking at today. Uh, but they thought they were good laws. Maybe one of the reasons they thought they were good laws is because one of the laws was the Sabbath, which is a day off. Any law that gives me a day off, I'm happy with. And he not only looks after their kind of spiritual and needing for rules, he gives them food and he gives them water. And what do the Israelites do? They become arrogant. They ignore his commands. 
and they make a golden calf and worship it. They take some gold and make it into a statue of a baby cow and then say that that cow is what brought them out of Egypt. That's what they do. So far, the Israelites have been found to have an ancestor with a good heart. They've cried out to God. And so the first significant thing they do is ignore him. So how does God respond? He doesn't desert them or abandon them. He continues to guide them. He continues to instruct them, continues to feed them, give them water all the way through the desert. I don't know about you. If I'd done absolutely amazing things to rescue a people and then they made a baby cow and said that it had done it instead of me, I don't think I'd carry on helping them for very long. Uh, let's move on from Exodus. So got one of the promises God made Abraham was a land. And so in we get to the book of Joshua and they get to the land and God gives them the land that he had promised and he looks after them. They play their part in that. They, they help take possession and they have a great time. The passage says, they ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. Things were great. And the passage immediately carries on, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. At this point, the passage changes style a bit. It stops being about specific bits of Israelite history, and we get a cycle going. The Israelites turn their back on God. God delivers them to the hands of their enemies. The Israelites realize things are bad and they cry out to help. God hears them and rescues them. And as soon as things are good, the Israelites forget about God and turn their back on him. And God delivers them to the hands of their enemies. And then they realize stuff's bad and they cry out to God. And God rescues them. Then as soon as things are good, they turn their back on God. I'm going to stop now. It happens in verse 26 and 27, happens in 28, and it happens again in 29 to 31. It's not even clear which specific times the passage is talking about because it happens many, many times in the book of Judges and many times throughout uh, the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. It happens again and again. And the Israelites know that it got so bad, God gave them a final warning. He said, if you keep on doing this, you're going to lose the land I gave you. I'll take it back effectively. The Israelites didn't listen. God took the land. Or God delivered them to the hands of their enemies. They got taken back out of their land. They once again became slaves. And things were bad. The Israelites managed to do what they always did when things were bad. When things were bad, they remembered that they had a God. And they prayed to him. And God did what he always did when they cried out to him. He saved them. This isn't so much a confession of the actual acts that these people have done wrong. 
as much as a confession of the way their heart is and who they are and what they keep on doing. They look at their ancestors and they think, that's what we were like. And we're probably still like that. Which means we have to ask ourselves a question. Are we like that? Do we remember God and cry out to God when we need to, when things are bad, and when things are good, forget about him? There's two levels to that question. This first question, are we like that as individuals? And are we like that as a group? As individuals, it's actually quite an easy thing to work out. If you're a Christian and you pray more when things are bad and then less when things are good, this is about you. And if you're sitting in this room going, oh, yeah, I definitely do pray more when I'm struggling and less when things are going well, I can 100% guarantee you're not the only person in this room. And I can 100% guarantee that because that's me. I do that. This is me. As a group, as a church, slightly harder to answer. But I think it probably still is true. If I look at, I'm not claiming to be an expert on church history, When I look at church history, I can see bits of this. We sung a song, uh, Blessed Be Your Name, and that's saying, blessed is your name when things are good and when things are bad. And I think before I read this passage and really thought about this passage, I thought the thinking God is blessed when things are good is the easy bit. And think God's blessed when things are hard is the hard one. And I think I got that the wrong way around. It's easy to cry out to God when things are hard, and it's hard to depend on God when things are easy. So anyway, so I think I think this is about us. I think my heart resonates with these people two and a half millennia ago. How did they respond? They saw this, that they were like this. Their first response was they continued to cry out to God. They had been brought back into their land. They had been given a city again. They'd rebuilt the city. They'd been given a rescuer. And they thought, this is good, but we still have a king far away. We're not in charge of ourselves yet. That things aren't as good as we want them to be. They're getting better, but they're not as good as we want them to be. So they cried out to God. Because they knew that if they cry out to God, God will act. God didn't always act and deliver them in the way they expected. God, in the Old Testament, normally delivered through people. And some of those people were strange choices. Sometimes God delivered them through the hands of amazing prophets who had amazing powers. Sometimes he delivered through mighty warriors. In the case of Nehemiah that we've been looking at, God delivered them through a palace functionary, a bureaucrat, a good administrator who knew the right ears to talk to. That's who God rescued through this time. God delivers through human beings, and they're often odd people, 
Ultimately, God delivered us through a carpenter with some fishermen friends from an unfashionable part of an insignificant country. To cry out to God if things are bad is the first response, and it's a great response. Don't hear me saying that we should pray when things are good, meaning that I don't think we should also cry out to God more when things are bad. And also, it's worth just saying, if things are bad, it might not be your fault. Most of the times in the past we just looked at, when the Israelites are in trouble, it's because they turn their back on God. But the first time they cry out to God, they are in Egypt, and they are not in Egypt due to turning their back on God. That is not why they're in Egypt. If you're in a bad situation, don't hear this passion and think, this is my fault. It might be, but that doesn't change what you should do, because Either way, cry out to God. Whether it is your fault or not, God will hear. And when God hears his people cry out, he acts. That's the, that's the first response. That's the rest of chapter 9. Chapter 10, they also make a commitment for when things are good. They commit themselves to God. They commit themselves to following the laws God gives them to keep themselves separate to keep the Sabbath, and they promise to look after the temple. And these are good commitments. A brief aside about verse uh, Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30, which to, our, to us seems very weird. Basically, they promise not to arrange marriages with their children to people from other nations. Now, there's at least two levels where this could be taken as problematic in the modern day. The first is the arranged marriage bit. That was the norm then. Whether it was right or wrong is a different matter and also not strictly relevant right now. The kind of is relevant is that they're keeping themselves separate, not uh, arranging marriages with people from other nations. That's got to be seen in the context of the Old Testament as a whole, where there are numerous times where people from outside God's people join God's people. It happens a handful of times. Rahab and Ruth being two prominent examples that even get into the genealogy of Jesus. But it's those are people who start worshipping God. It's not, this isn't about some kind of weird ethnic purity or ethnicity or race at all. This is about keeping the people who follow God undistracted and following God and not letting them get distracted by other people. That's what it's about. Anyway, that was a brief side that was important. But these are good commitments. These are good things for us to do. These are people going, this is what, these are the mistakes we keep on making in the past. This is what we're going to do from now on. And they're good commitments, but they don't go far enough, I think. Because they're all about how they act. And God cares about the heart. God cares about the heart. And that's not just something you find in the New Testament. It's not just something you find in the teaching of Jesus. It's even there in the passage we had read today. Back in verse 7, Abraham was found to have a faithful heart. That was the start of the whole thing. It's about the heart, and none of these address the heart. And commitments are good, but to be honest, they don't hold 
human hearts, because human hearts are rubbish. This isn't the first time the Israelites have recommitted themselves to following God. It happens in Exodus 24, Joshua 8, Joshua 24, just to name three. And spoiler warning, all of these are broken by the end of the book of Nehemiah. All of them. It's like a bad relationship where someone, imagine you've got a friend, or I hope you've got lots of friends. Imagine one of your friends ends up in a bad situation, basically their own fault, but they're in a bad situation and they come to you and go, help me, help me. And you go, okay, fine, come in. And you get them back on their feet financially. You look after their health until their health's recovered, whatever the situation is. And things are great for a while. And they say, okay, we're not gonna, I'm not going to make those mistakes again. And then they meet a new set of friends who are bad influences. And they go down exactly the same path. And the exact same method. And they come back and go, help me, help me. You go, fine, I'll help you. And you help them. And you give them a bed until they're recovered. And everything's good again. And they say, okay, this time I've learned my lesson. Until they meet a new set of bad influences. And the cycle begins again. The Israelites keep on promising to be different this time. <laughs> And they never are. Is there any hope then for us? If that's how the Israelites were, they kept on failing, kept on falling down. Is there any hope? I think there is for three reasons. The first is the Israelites had a lot to be thankful for, but we've got more to be thankful for. God delivered them from slavery. God became human to deliver us from sin and death by dying for us. We've got more to be thankful for. We're also under a different deal. The covenant that they made, that Abraham and God made, was good, but we've got a better deal. For example, only a handful of people managed in the Old Testament to join God's people. But it's really easy to join the new covenant, the new deal, the church. All you have to do is believe in the cross of Jesus. That's all it takes. It took a lot more back then. But more personally, in the old deal, when the Israelites turned their back on God, God's presence left them. That was part of the deal. But for us, God's presence lives in us even when we're being rubbish, God's presence lives in us. Which brings me to the third reason we have hope. We've got the Holy Spirit. God's presence in us. And the Holy Spirit not only can change hearts, he does change hearts. So those commitments they couldn't stick to because their hearts hadn't changed, our hearts do change because God lives in us. So, to wrap this up, if things are difficult in your life, cry out to God. He will hear and he will act. If things are good, remember what he's done for you. Remember his grace and commit to him. As individuals and as a church, I think we move, as above bar church, I think we're moving from a difficult period into a slightly easier period. I really hope that's true. 
In which case, we need to commit ourselves to remembering what God has done for us and holding on to him and not letting ourselves forget about him when things are easier. Sometimes I hear uh, atheists say that religion, particularly Christianity, or sometimes they just say God, is a crutch. Just there for when you're struggling. And the problem with that accusation is sometimes that's how we treat it. A crutch is something you lean on when you can't walk by yourself. But when you can walk again, you put it in the cupboard just in case you ever need it again. I really hope that when we're doing well, we don't put God in a cupboard just in case we ever need him again. Thank you, Matthew. We're going to take a few minutes just to pray and respond to God and his word. And just to remind you of those, those four words I said earlier, hungry, attentive, responsive, and teachable. When God brings his word, he wants to change us through it. So I'll lead us as we pray. Some of the words from our passage say this. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. Lord, please search our hearts as we come before you. Please show me and please show us where we've become arrogant and stiff-necked, where we're not obeying your commands, where we're refusing to listen to you. Please speak, Holy Spirit, and show us the things that you want us individually and as a church to repent of. And I encourage you just to listen honestly and see if God puts anything on your heart. And if he does, bring that to him in repentance. Father, we're sorry for that tendency we so often have to pick you up when we need you and put you down when we think we can manage without you. Lord, have mercy on us. Please forgive us. Thank you that you do want to help us when things are hard. But thank you that you also want to be our constant companion 
when things are going well. And we pray, Lord, that we would be people who know what it is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength in the good times and the hard times. Lord, thank you that you are always faithful. Thank you that time and again, when your people cried out to you, you were gracious and compassionate and ready to forgive. Lord, we come to you today as people who need that fresh mercy and grace and that fresh forgiveness. Please forgive us where our hearts are proud. Please forgive us where we're stubborn. We're sorry, Lord, for times when we rely on ourselves and we don't truly know what it is to depend on you. Lord, may we as a church be be a people who are humble before you, where there's pride in our church. Have mercy on us, Lord, and forgive us. Where there's self-sufficiency in our church, please forgive us, Lord, and help us to grow in God-dependence. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we can bring all of our mess and our failure all of our sin, our shame, to the cross. And we pray today for true repentance before you. And we pray today for a fresh sense of your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.